I think we're in a moment right now where how we think about mental health is very influenced by the pharmaceutical industry. They've really been creating the backbone of how we think about mental health. If we were alive in the 90s, we were trained to dutifully call depression a uh, low serotonin. You know, those were Zoloft commercials that really taught us that information. And this idea that mental health is the result of a genetic chemical imbalance and it exists from the neck up and it's our brain chemistry is in certain ways marketing. Welcome to FemPower Health, Georgie here. According to the World Health Organization, the COVID pandemic triggered a 25% increase in anxiety and depression worldwide. So I'm pleased to bring to you today, psychiatrist, Dr. Ellen Vora, who challenges the conventional view of anxiety as a mental disorder, backed by the latest scientific research and Dr. Vora's own clinical work, her book, the Anatomy of Anxiety offers a fresh, much-needed look at mental health, offering actionable strategies for managing our moods. Now, you can imagine what a big topic this is, so clearly we could not cover everything in this episode. However, I promise you, you will get such helpful information as you navigate your path through anxiety. So let's take a listen, and I do highly recommend that you check out her book because it is something we should all have on our desks to reference. So let's dive right in. So we are here to talk about anxiety. It's funny, I, I told Ruby what reading her book was like, and uh, in reading yours, I, I, it, was an, it was such an interesting journey because you start out by talking about, you know, the false anxiety versus the true anxiety and like educating us on how to get rid of things. But then you um, talk about the true anxiety and then also your journey. So I love how it's like a very fact-based here, are the things you do. Okay. Now that we got all that out of the way, like here's how we get to the hard stuff. And so it was, it was a really interesting journey in the path of the book and so, so helpful all along the way. So I can't wait to talk more about it. But before we dive in, why don't you give us your background and then we can start having this awesome conversation. Sure. So I'm a psychiatrist. I took a very conventional path through my training. I went to Columbia for medical school and then completed my psychiatry residency at Mount Sinai. And throughout that process, on the one hand, I was learning the craft as it is in the conventional world, but I was also marching a little bit to the beat of my own drum. I was disenchanted with what I was learning. I often felt, you know, that first most cardinal principle of practicing medicine, first do no harm. I sometimes wondered, I wasn't always sure if an encounter with me was truly net beneficial for patients, whether putting them on all of this, these cocktails of medications, were they thriving? Were they the better for it? Were they occasionally harmed by it? And that was always on my mind. It made me very hesitant and felt a bit out of alignment with it. And that was a crisis for me. And that crisis happened alongside physical health crises that I was in, mental health crises that I was in. So nothing was functioning in my mental or physical health. And I was disenchanted with my training. Those two processes were happening in parallel. And in certain ways, the solution to both, um, there was a, a single solution to both, which was as I started to explore different ways to support my own health, that gave me tools that I started using with certain patients and I saw them do better. And all of this came together to be the way I practice today. And it 
it required that I went on and did a lot of additional training and things like functional medicine, Chinese medicine, acupuncture, Ayurveda. I became a yoga teacher, studied nutrition, and all of this informs everything I do with patients today. Wow. And it's so clear in the book. So first, why don't we start by separating out this true versus false anxiety um, to help people level set? And I want to overlay that with another question that has been looming on my mind for a really long time. And I think you're a perfect person to ask this about. And maybe this we have to start with this to, to talk about the true and false is mental health and it being on a spectrum. So I know specifically we're here about the quote unquote diagnosis of anxiety, but I always wonder like, how do people truly assess what it is and does it really matter? Because the way I almost saw this book, because I've had my own mental health stuff, lots of family members, friends, we have COVID layered on our crazy world. And you talk about that in the book. I always wonder how do we really diagnose? And because that usually impacts the treatment. But the way you write this book, it kind of reminds me of my own path. Like my big step to realizing that I was not in the right environment was leaving New York City. I never thought I would leave. And when I had that space, when I split from my ex, my entire world shifted. And then I had the space to start pulling the pieces away from my struggles. And so that's kind of that false anxiety piece you you talk about. And so there's this whole like, is it anxiety? Is it not? Does it really matter? And then it's almost like, I, even in your book, it's like you peel apart the different layers to get to healing. So is that really what this is about? Um, so the first question, what is true anxiety, false anxiety? This is the central thesis of my book. And the idea here is that even though in my training, I was taught to think about anxiety according to our Bible of mental health, which is called the DSM or the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, um, where we categorize anxiety into all these different types. Is it generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, with or without agoraphobia? To me, what I was starting to observe in my practice was that that classification system was not steering my clinical care in a meaningful way. And what I started to realize is that the way I was thinking about anxiety that did steer management meaningfully was to divide anxiety into two types, what I call false anxiety and what I call true anxiety. At this point, I paused to caveat that I've learned now a year into a book tour, this term false anxiety is triggering because we we hear it and it feels invalidating. It feels like, what do you mean my anxiety is false? And I want to be really clear. It, it doesn't speak to the suffering. The suffering is very real. It has to do with the root cause, the etiology of that anxiety. And false anxiety is basically physical anxiety. And importantly, it is avoidable anxiety. It doesn't have to be happening. It's based in the physical body, and it occurs when something has tipped our physiology into a stress response. And then we subjectively experience that stress response as what we call anxiety. But the cause of it is usually some seemingly innocuous aspect of modern life. There's been a blood sugar crash. We got a bad night of sleep. We're over-caffeinated. We're hungover. We're... Uh, late for a dose of a psychiatric medication. Something has tipped our physiology out of balance and that creates the stress response. And I think we do well to actually identify that underlying root cause, address it at that level, and we can eliminate unnecessary suffering. True anxiety, very much on the other hand, is purposeful anxiety. 
It's not something that we get to decaf coffee our way out of. It's not something to even attempt to suppress. And it's not what's wrong with us. True anxiety is actually what's right with us when we are able to viscerally connect to what's wrong around us, whether that's something in our personal lives, in our communities, in the world at large. And it's not something to pathologize this true anxiety. It's really something to slow down and listen to and honor and and heed its guidance. So in what you just shared with me, a very classic example of true anxiety is when we sort of know deep inside we need to get out of a certain relationship or change our geography or change our career. And it's often an inconvenient truth. It feels like it would blow up our lives. But that's where my friend and colleague, Britt Frank, has such a great way of saying this. She says, choose your hard. It's hard to blow up our lives, to leave a marriage, to leave a home, to change jobs. And in many ways, it's harder to live years, decades out of alignment. And so that's what true anxiety is really about. And and I think it's so important to differentiate this because I think some anxiety is unnecessary suffering and it can be avoided, but some anxiety is really not something we should be pathologizing or trying to suppress. It's actually here as very important communication that in some way we've gotten out of alignment and we need to course correct. How does one know if it's true or false? My process, my system for this is that when I'm working with a patient, we start with false anxiety. That's the low-hanging fruit. It's the quick wins. And I, I have a false anxiety inventory that I use with people. It's like, take a scan at this list. When you're in a moment of peak anxiety, what feels true right now? And it's not to invalidate the story that our mind tells us, because our mind will always tell us, I'm anxious right now because of this thing going on at work and this interpersonal dynamic from the seventh grade that still bothers me. And all of those stories we tell ourselves, there's still validity to it. It's just not actually the reason for the anxiety in that moment. The reason for the anxiety in that moment is a physical state of imbalance. And that story is the brain attempting to make sense of what is first and foremost a physical sensation. And that's what the brain does. Thank goodness. It's a meaning maker. It feels a sensation and it attempts to make sense of it. And so in that moment, you can even say to yourself, my problems are real. These stressors are valid. And... I need a snack right now, or, and I'm aware that I had a bad night of sleep last night. I'm a little bit hungover. I had an extra cold brew coffee and I'm getting my period tomorrow. And it doesn't make our problems invalid, but it does mean that perhaps things are feeling amplified with our moods and that can sometimes take the charge out of it. And so I like for people to address as much of the false anxiety in their lives as possible, mainly just to reduce suffering. So then they're clearer, they're calmer, they have more resilience in the face of their very real stressors, but it also clears the air and allows us to see what remains is often the true anxiety. And you can start to discern the false anxiety almost has a temporal pattern to it. It's like an hour and a half after I have refined carbohydrates, I feel anxious, whereas true anxiety has more of a thematic quality to it. So it's when I'm headed to work, I feel this anxiety, or when I'm headed back home to my partner, I feel this anxiety. It has more of a quality related to what we're headed into and how that sits with our bodies. And once we're clear on our false anxiety and we're tapping into our true anxiety, um, we're usually, it's a skill to develop like discerning what's our really, our true anxieties. And do you find that there are people who 
don't even realize they're dealing with anxiety because it has almost become the daily norm? It's such a good question. And in a way, like right now, anxiety is, is it's the pH of our age, you know, it's the temperature. Um, and so when we're out of balance, when we're suffering, a lot of us call that anxiety. It's our go-to subjective term. I feel like there have been eras where it was more common to identify with depression or melancholy. And right now we're really feeling anxious and we come by it honestly. There's a lot that's very anxiety provoking going on in the world. There are also a lot of um, less deep reasons for why we're all so anxious. Like on the one hand, we are contending with a pandemic and climate change and we're having a very deep upheaval on a social level and we're reckoning with what's not right at the very foundation of our society. And at the same time, we are bathed in marketing that preys on our fear response. I call this the banality of fear, but basically advertisers know that sex sells, but so does fear. And so it's in their best interest to tell us that we are in some way broken or unsafe or need this product that they have to sell. And they're just using fear to convince us that we need to buy something we don't actually need. And so we're bathed in fear messaging all the time and algorithms on social media favor controversy and, and all of that. So I think that we're really getting a lot of signals of fear, some of them very deeply rooted in truth and some of them a little bit like the banality of, of just what works in marketing and algorithms. Yeah. For those who are like, what is this checklist that, um, that Ellen's talking about? You have to check out the book because the way you wrote it, it goes through each of the issues the types of things you can do to look through what the false anxiety is to really start getting at these deeper aspects of the true anxiety. And so I think it, it's such a great checklist and manual that it's almost like if I'm having a rough day and I'm not a hundred percent sure, and I'm feeling really anxious, okay, did I get my sleep check? What's the chapter? Like I, it's so well done and it's very caring and thoughtful and not like you have to do these X things. And if you don't X, Y, Z, like it's a very caring well-researched, um, well-thought-out way. I do want to talk about one of the aspects, though, which is women and hormones. Yeah. And I mean, at risk of ch changing the flow in a way that would be suboptimal, I also, it's burning in me, your earlier question about this spectrum of mental health. And maybe I have this compulsive need to touch on that, that first and then we let's do go it. to hormones. Okay. So, I mean, I think that this is actually like really philosophical. And, and I think we're in a moment right now where how we think about mental health is very influenced by the pharmaceutical industry. They've really been um, creating the backbone of how we think about mental health. We were all, if we were alive in the 90s, we were trained to dutifully call depression a, a low serotonin. You know, those were Zoloft commercials that really taught us that information. And this idea that mental health is the result of a genetic chemical imbalance and it exists from the neck up and it's our brain chemistry is in certain ways a marketing narrative. It turns out at this point we have vast meta-analyses that really show us that there's no basis for the serotonin theory of depression. And that's kind of a big gulp moment because I have people coming to me and saying, well, then should I stop my antidepressants? And it's it's such a, a complicated and fraught issue because to me, I, my response, I always want to say like, well, the question is not, is the theory for why these meds would work the reason to stay on them or get off of them? To me, the question is, are they helping? Which you would think we could independently answer without 
with or without a theory to back it up. Um, and so I think that it just opens up all these questions of what is depression, what is anxiety. And we're really taught that it's some brokenness in us. And I have come to believe that when we focus exclusively on this genetic basis for mental health, it's not only our least hopeful narrative about mental health, but it's also inaccurate. And it it's myopic. It fails to appreciate that we have very evidence-based determinants of our mental health beyond our genes, how we're sleeping, how we're nourishing our bodies, the level of inflammation, how our hormones are functioning, how our digestive tract is functioning. And these are all physical bases for mental health. But we also have these psycho-spiritual bases for mental health. Do we connect to community? Do we have a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives? Do we feel like we're being of service and making a meaningful contribution? Do we hang out in nature ever? All of these also impact our mental health. And so I just prefer to shift our focus to all of these environmental influences. It's the part we can control rather than dwell on the genetic aspect. And the genetic aspect was only ever a predisposition, never a destiny. And so when it's a spectrum, like what I really think is that mental health symptoms, it's, it's the body communicating something some degree of imbalance, which I think is either physical or psycho-spiritual. And there's trauma in there, which is its own kind of complicated separate category. But when I talk to people about diet and lifestyle, physical supports for their mental health, I'll get the pushback, which is that's all well and good if somebody had like mild anxiety, but I have real anxiety. I have clinical depression. So surely you must give me a real treatment for my real depression. And that's actually where I think we have to get so clear yeah. on this paradigm shift, which is that like, there isn't a qualitative difference between those two things. It's a difference in degree. And I think to me, the only real qualitative difference in how I would approach supporting a mental health issue, I'm still always going to think about root cause. And within that, I'm still always going to think about physical root causes and psycho-spiritual root causes. But sometimes something is too far to, to be supported holistically in an effective way. And I think about that sometimes with certain psychotic disorders I think certain bipolar diatheses where somebody isn't amenable to doing diet and lifestyle strategies to support it, that's where I think medication is almost always necessary. And then I actually think that medications themselves can sometimes create a brittleness with mental health that can be difficult to just exclusively support with diet and lifestyle. And so to me, that's like a really interesting question is like, what about this spectrum? And, and I actually think it's always the body communicating something to us and we can always support it at the root, but there are times when it's harder to support it. Right. And I so appreciate you answering the question because again, it's something that's been looming on my mind with all these interviews I've done, the, the books I've read and my own experiences. And one thing I, I do want those listening to think about, especially if in the, they're in a very heightened state of anxiety is this is not a um, extensive set of guidelines. It's like a step-by-step -step process. So it shouldn't feel overwhelming. I even think of my own journey to starting to figure out my life and my health. It's like baby steps. And over time, when the noise of the anxiety and whatever starts to go away because you're taking these steps, it's easier to start to see where the triggers are. And then you kind of know and can make decisions about your diet and lifestyle, where you're living, all these other factors to 
truly do what you need. Would that be a correct it, way to look at this? It's such an Im- important clarification because I have that tendency to just overwhelm somebody with, you know, I never, I'm always, my goal is I want people to feel empowered and hopeful. And when people I can tell are despairing and feeling like I've tried everything for my mental health and nothing has worked. And then they start to feel really defeated and, and they despair. I come at that with being like, well, there's these 50 things that we could try. And then they're like, well, that's just making me more anxious and depressed. <laughs> now I have to do 50 things. And actually you don't have to do 50 things. You, you figure out, I always say, think of it like a buffet. Pick the one thing that you feel drawn to. Is there something there that you want to interact with, something that feels accessible or particularly resonant? You start there, and then that shifts how you feel. And when you're ready, the next change feels within reach. But there's no need to boil the whole ocean at once. In fact, that can create its own issues. And so you take this very gently and slowly. And the process of checking in with ourselves and doing this in a way that's very gentle and self-loving is there's something inherently therapeutic about even just taking that approach to our own healing. Um, Because one patient described this as being in couples therapy with her own body. Oh, I love that. need better communication, better listening, better respect. This isn't just, here's what the book told me to do, or here's what a doctor told me to do. It's here's an array of options. And what do you feel is the right first step? And how is that going? And does this feel like you still want to keep pushing with this? Or actually, do you want to ease off of this? And the real medicine is in that dialogue with yourself. Yep. No, absolutely. And I love that you even in the book write examples of how you've been able to help people. I think the one that I um, had my LOL moment was the person who could not get the sleep right. And you guys tried absolutely everything. And you're like, go camping or did the person go camping and then they came back and said they felt better. I can't remember if it was a doctor's order or the other way around, but um, as someone who now camps every year, I take my son to a national park. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. But I laughed so hard. I'm like, you do not give up (laughs) on your patients. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I remember this so, so clearly. And this was early in my practice. Like I was still figuring out a lot of what I do. This was probably almost 10 years ago. And I was a little bit like throwing my hands up. It's <laughs> like I don't know, um, and and I think I I flew it I threw it out there almost a little bit flippantly. Like here's what would make sense to help. Why don't you try it? Why not? It'll be fun, and and it was literally the first thing and only thing that really worked for him. And then now it's part of his life, and it's such a beautiful thing that he took out of this work, and now it's like a it's a pastime for him. Yeah. What I also loved about what you said, and just going back, is how we look at treating the the mental health aspects, um, because it is almost like the way the world works right now is I have issue, get a prescription, and my concern is by doing it that way instead of looking at root cause, especially because of some of the way these medications work. And again, I am not anti-medication. I don't think you are either. Um, but this is really about finding the right answers and not masking things. But I could imagine if there are these triggers that we may need to be in touch with to be able to listen to ourselves, if we mask them with medication, could that also have longer term negative impacts on healing? 
Yes, much to say on this. Yeah, so you're exactly right. I'm not anti-medication. I'm a psychiatrist. I prescribe medication. I um, I always want to do the most effective and least harmful thing for a patient. And when I think about how we're taught to think about this, it's that that marketing from the pharmaceutical industry basically teaches us your depression is a serotonin deficiency. In other words, it's a Lexapro deficiency disorder, and we have the pill that fixes that. And what I've come to appreciate is that so many of my patients don't have a Lexapro deficiency disorder. They have an inflammation state, or they're actually vitamin B12 deficient, or they're in the wrong relationship, or whatever the case may be. They have no community in their lives. They're staying up until midnight every night, doom scrolling, not getting good quality sleep, and they're chronically exhausted. So there's usually some physical or psychospiritual etiology or root cause to their depression. Um, and I think taking medications we just have to appreciate it. it's good and bad. Um, and, I, yeah. and when I'm prescribing a medication, I'm doing that wittingly after a very thorough, informed consent conversation with a patient that maybe this is the right step for us, is a bridge out of where you are, but it comes with trade-offs. And some of those trade-offs include everything from, it does seem to narrow the range of how we feel. So the lows are less low and the highs are less high. And perhaps it blunts us from fully feeling, fully grieving while we're on it. So I've had some patients who then later went on to go off of medication. It's almost as though they're recapitulating some experience that might've been blunted while they were medicated. Maybe they lost a parent, maybe they lost a pet, maybe they went through a divorce. Something happened while they were medicated, but then as they get off of medication, it's almost like then they do the full grieving process. I've always thought that that was interesting. Um, and then we just need informed consent around the range of possibilities. We are led to believe that the efficacy is better than it is. For mild to moderate depression, it doesn't really separate from placebo. But placebo itself is nothing to sneeze at, so it does have an impact, but that impact fades over time, and I'm more in favor of a placebo that's fully benign and doesn't have side effects. Um, the side effects are worth talking with patients about. The sexual side effects I think of as very, um, they give me a lot of pause about starting people on medications because that can be life-altering. It can change your satisfaction in a relationship, even your motivation to find companionship, which I'm not here to say there's a one single right path, but I don't want to alter it. I don't like playing God with somebody's path chemically. And then um, I think that we just really need to be talking about what happens when people discontinue these medications. And there's a lot of medical gaslighting that happens around that. We're not given that, con that consent up front that when you decide to go off of this for whatever reason, this could create a withdrawal syndrome that's very difficult. And we just deserve to know that before we take that first pill. Doesn't mean we should never use these medications. It's just that we deserve to know that when we're deciding. And so that's something I work a lot on in my practice is supporting people with the discontinuation process so that they can get off safely, sustainably, without undue suffering. Right. And thank you for, for sharing all that because the other one of the other reasons why, the many reasons why I love doing this podcast is to me, this is all in the nuance. And um, if a clinician doesn't proactively have the conversation that um, you're sharing that you have with your patients, we as patients should ask, but if we don't know what's possible or how things work, we may not think to ask. So like, for example, um, when I did the sleep episode, by the way, your approach to the sleep um, chapter, the tone in which you write versus Dr. Chris Winter was so funny. Like yours was <laughs> like, 
the caring, loving doctor who is going to walk you through all the steps. I felt like just my hand being held. And Dr. Winter was like, here are the facts. I'm going to make this absolutely hilarious. And don't mess with me because this is my expertise. And so don't tell me you don't sleep. Here are the things you need to do. But it was it was just such a funny tone. And he was such a pleasure to interview. But it was just, it was very funny. But based on all of these books, you know, I had a different conversation with my doctor. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even think to ask these types of questions. And it's completely changed my path. And by the way, she's amazing. And we talk about great things, but we can't cover everything. And so sometimes it's up to the patient to have that conversation. And so thank you for sharing what the possibility of these conversations can and should look like. I mean, this is also a function of our healthcare system where over time, what we've done is it's become managed care and doctors have become providers and it's become much more of an assembly line is that we've squeezed time out of the doctor-patient relationship. That's the commodity that got eliminated from it. So now these burned out doctors are spending 15, maybe eight minutes with a patient and what can you really do for somebody in that much time? I mean, you're faced with a patient. They're saying everything is hard right now. And they start to cry. And you just think, ah, like I'm about to run behind and that will throw off my whole day and the metrics for the hospital system and I'll be in trouble and I'll be penalized and the clinic will be penalized and so on and so forth. And so you just think I have to stay on track. And you can only really resolve anything by saying, well, here, take this prescription. And you did nothing to understand what was really contributing to their symptoms. You did nothing to address it at the root cause, and you did nothing to hold space in a healing way. Um, so the only solution that eight minutes can result in is a prescription right. typically and, and without much informed consent. Yep, exactly. So women's health. Let's get yes, back to the hormones. <laughs> Let's talk about the hormones. And, uh, and there's a, a few different aspects um, about this because, you know, in our lifetime, our hom- hormones also change. And, you know, I just hit menopause. Now let's add to it over our lifetime, our hormones change within a given month, our hormones change. Do we have a hormonal imbalance? Is it the birth control we're on? Is it the stage of life? Is it that we're stressed? Like, seriously, where's the checkbox? So I know what to do. <laughs> so we sort of touch on a couple hot, hot takes. So I mean, let's just get out of the way. First of all, that hormones impact our mental health. It feels a little bit like duh, um, but I remember certainly being an early 20-something and going to my primary care doctor and saying, this birth control pill that I just started seems to be making me sadder, tearful, and more volatile. And what I really needed in that moment was somebody saying, that's valid. And there's reason to believe that that would be the case. And maybe let's think creatively about different contraceptive options. Instead, I got that medical gaslight bullying combo of like, well, there's no evidence for that. But you seem stressed, sweetie. Do you want to go on Prozac? So um, I think that um, I do just want to validate anybody who's on any exogenous hormones that, yes, if you suspect that it's impacting your anxiety or depression levels, Of course it is. And now the evidence does support that decades later. Um, But also, it always made sense. If anyone's ever felt differently the days before their period, that's an example of hormones impacting our mood. And exogenous hormones 
change our hormonal milieu and impact our mood. And we now have really interesting and slightly disheartening evidence about the fact that um, the earlier you take exogenous hormones, the seemingly greater and more enduring impact it has on our mental health issues, which to me is concerning because now we're really prescribing it willy-nilly for acne and period cramps and um, I don't necessarily want teenage women to just suffer with acne or period cramps, but I always want to address those issues at the root rather than putting a Band-Aid on, especially if this Band-Aid is setting her up for a lifetime of depression and decreased libido. Right. So that's a factor. The birth control conversation, we just we just need to be having the broader conversation. And it was a beautiful, critical juncture in terms of women's liberation and for us to be able to control our fertility. I'm very much in favor of that. But now let's do better, which is just discussing the full menu. And I have personally landed at fertility awareness method. It has its drawbacks. It's not for everyone or every situation. But I've loved not only that it's a non-hormonal way of managing fertility, but that it has attuned me to my cycle, which I wish I had been able to do when I was 12. And to now know I feel this way because I'm in my follicular phase, or I feel this way because I'm getting my period in two days. That has been such empowering knowledge that helps me take the charge out of the weepiness, the tenderness, the irritability in the late luteal phase that helps me schedule big speaking engagements when I'm in my follicular phase. And it just, I think, to be able to structure our lives around our hormones rather than molding our cycling bodies into this 24-hour, every day is the same, very masculine work environment, I think it's beautiful to be able to work with our own rhythms. There's apps coming out with female athletes about possibly changing how you're working out and the activities that you're planning based on where you are in your menstrual cycle. And I love this aspect that you're sharing about changing how we approach the world by um, having more awareness. Can you talk more about patients that you've worked with and approaching things that way? Um, so patient examples, there's three that come to mind relevant to this. And one is, is just a patient of mine. I forget the name I gave her in my book. I think I called her Brianna. And um, basically, she had gone on the pill around when she was about 16, I think, for acne. And um, a few months later, she was diagnosed with depression and anxiety and ADHD, I believe, went, went on meds for all of that, eventually had trouble sleeping, eventually went on meds for that. She came to me many years later, medicated up the wazoo, really not thriving, um, like no libido, but also very much anxious and depressed, couldn't sleep, couldn't focus in spite of being so heavily medicated. And it took me a while to actually connect all the dots but it was a point when she had gone off the pill because she wasn't in a relationship and a lot of her symptoms resolved. And I was like, hey, wait a minute, what's this about? And then she went back on a hormonal IUD when she got back into a relationship and all of her symptoms returned. And I went back to her chart and I was like, I missed this. Her entire mental health history started about two months after she first went on the pill when she was 16. And we never connected those dots. And there's a line in my book, which is that your gut and your brain are talking to each other, even if your psychiatrist and your gastroenterologist are not. This was one of those moments where, you know, the, the primary care doc had put her on the pill, the psychiatrist had put her on the, in her case, Adderall, Wellbutrin, and Lexapro. And they weren't talking to each other or thinking that what they were doing was relevant to each other. It was just, well, here's a woman with acne, so we treat that. And here's a woman with depression and anxiety, so we treat that. And it turns out the treatment for the acne 
caused the depression and the anxiety. And so she was on a lifetime of an identity of herself as somebody with mental health issues, with a lot of medications, a lot of trips to the drugstore. And it actually turns out that this all could have been addressed by just not addressing her acne with exogenous hormones. And not only that, but we eventually, in, in what we did to support her body globally, addressed her acne. And so it's like just to take the time to think, well, what's causing this? And to support it in that elegant way from the root, you're solving future problems rather than creating future problems. Do you want to give the other two? I'm thinking about a patient of mine. It was an interesting example of true anxiety, false anxiety, because she had such severe PMS symptoms. She qualified for a diagnosis of PMDD or premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And it was her gynecologist who suggested she go on Prozac for the week before her period every month. So she came to me and she was like, should I do that? And it really helped me think through the premenstrual period. And for just by way of a quick explanation, our cycle is approximately 28 days long. And I think your listeners basically know this. They've got their PhD in all things women's health at this point. But those first two weeks, the follicular phase, um, it's the bleeding cycle and then a more of an estrogen-dominated phase of the cycle. Then we ovulate. And after that, it's more of a progesterone-dominated phase called the luteal phase leading into the bleeding phase. And the end of that, as our hormones start to wane, we can feel a little tender, irritable, sad. And in my patient's case, all of that was exaggerated. She'd have dark thoughts. She'd have suicidal thoughts. She was incapacitated. And um, it turns out that I think that that has a lot of true and false anxiety components to it. The false anxiety piece is that modern life has meant that our hormones are really pretty out of whack. And part of this is that we are exposed to all of these xenoestrogens or exogenous substances in our lives that mimic estrogen in the body. So that's things like plastics and those forever chemicals, all of the endocrine disruptors and our personal care products and perfume and makeup and cleaning products, all the way to pesticides and air pollution. So that's impacting our estrogen level and making it falsely elevated. But then we're also chronically stressed and a little bit nutritionally deficient, and that's actually lowering our progesterone levels because of something called pregnenolone steel, which is that cortisol, our stress hormone, and progesterone have a common precursor called pregnenolone. And because we're chronically stressed in our modern lives, we steal the pregnenolone and devote it to cortisol every day, and we don't make enough progesterone. So it's because of this falsely elevated estrogen and falsely lowered progesterone that a lot of us have an even more exaggerated crash of hormones right before we bleed. And that is what I consider a sort of false PMS. It's exaggerated. It's more than it needs to be. And at the same time, I think we have a cultural moment where we need to reckon with the very true part of PMS, which is that we call someone who's PMSing all kinds of names, but we, we call it bitchiness or irritability and irrationality. And I actually think it's truth serum. Like I think if anything, we might be irrational in the follicular phase when we say, oh, this problem in my life, no big deal. But it's in those days before we bleed that we say, this problem in my life, very big deal. And the truth is probably somewhere in between. But I think we just need for ourselves to reclaim that we're not irrational bitches in that moment, but that there's probably some pretty important truth to what is dragging on our spirit in those moments. Wow. That is a beautiful example. Do you want to go to the third patient? The third one? You're good. So I think just to think through perimenopause and all of those challenges, this is where 
I think back to a course I took in college around reproductive biology, where they taught us a theory about menopause, which is that in many ways, it's a medical oddity because everything else in the human lifespan, we can select for adaptive traits because of natural selection. But the fact that menopause is by definition post-reproductive means that it's very hard for natural selection to act on it. And so if one random 50-year-old woman had a mutation that gave her a better, more comfortable menopause, there's very little paths in evolution for that to be selected for. We have our grandmother hypothesis, you know, that says a little bit about it. But in a way, it's, it's that menopause doesn't have an easy way to be improved upon evolutionarily. And I think that the body makes sense always. And so what the body does in these instances is that it will adapt in a way that would be adaptive in the reproductive years of life. And so the closest approximation to the perimenopausal hormonal crash is actually the postpartum period. And so I think it's an interesting framing for thinking about the symptoms in perimenopause, like that crash in hormones. Perhaps it would make sense to mobilize calcium from the bones to make it available for breast milk. Perhaps it would make sense to radiate warmth to be able to warm our infant. Perhaps it would make sense for the sleep to be more superficial so that we can be woken up by an infant's cries. And so it just all kind of speaks to the fact that there are some pretty inconvenient symptoms of the perimenopausal period that might be so because it's, the, it would, it's what would make sense if this crash were happening in the reproductive years. And it doesn't really make it any easier, um, but I think it's actually helpful to just recognize that while this is natural, evolution didn't really get a good chance to improve upon it. Are you finding that the way people tended to be emotionally in the postpartum phase tends to align then with the perimenopausal phase. I mean, because I, I know that um, in some of the interviews I've done, like um, Dr. Jerry Lynn Pryor and Dr. Lara Bryden, we did an episode on how every woman needs to ovulate, whether or not you're trying to have a child, and that actually um, your ovulation is a sign of your health. You know, we talked a lot in there about the hormonal health in our younger life and how we treat our bodies actually does impact the experience of, of perimenopause and the hormonal shifts. It's interesting. And I think it's a really interesting question. Like, do just the mental health symptoms that we see align? And I guess my my first instinct is just that what overshadows the mental health changes in both, where there's a hormonal component to yep. fragility, depression, anxiety in both, it's actually the cultural experience of both. And I think that there's a role transition that occurs in the postpartum period and in the perimenopausal period that our culture seems to just have a knack for making as difficult as possible. And, and I think that has an outsized impact on the mood changes as well. And so to me, like the, the angle that I like to take always like in bringing empowerment and hope is just thinking like, how do we get to reclaim and reframe how we're thinking about this menopausal transition? And rather than and this kind of loops in with this medical oddity theory is that it's a different postpartum period. There's a rebirth occurring. In this case, there's no infant to look after. There's really this opportunity to be reborn. And rather than pouring all of our caretaking and attunement energy into all the people around us, it's a time when we actually get to finally train that lens on ourselves. And so I think in that framing, 
can we roll with those symptoms with a little bit more grace and really not see ourselves as not fitting into the mold of what the world expects of us and this youth obsession, but like to really at least for ourselves see this as a transition toward wisdom, toward um, getting to put our energy toward ourselves without caring quite as much about what other people think. And I think that's also such an interesting hormonal sort of little pearl is that when they study primates, they know that the most interpersonally effective primates are also the most reproductively successful. So there seems to be something about our reproductive era in our life where we are hormonally fueled to keep the peace. And when we're no longer being hormonally fueled to keep the peace, this really frees us up. And I think that I just think that there's such an opportunity for reclamation. Yep. It is so true. Since this is our first time together, it's like the 101. Let's, you know, do a quick pass on all important things, anxiety. And if you're open to it, we may have to just do a follow-up and dive deep in, deeper into other yes. things. But I did want to bring up the CBT. You had such an interesting take on CBT. And, you know, I hope that when people leave this episode, they walk away with food for thought and like, hold on a minute, let me reshift my thinking. And I think this is probably another good one um, to get into. So tell us that food for thought on CBT. Ooh. Let's see if I can summarize it. Cause this was a section of my book I really wrestled with and <laughs> to sort of like carry it over the finish line and make it make sense. But let's see. The inspiration for this was actually, um, it's actually, you had Ruby Warrington on recently with her incredible book. Um, it's called uh, Women, Women Without, Without Children mm -hmm. and Without Kids. And um, I originally know of her through a friend of mine, Holly Whitaker, who has a book called uh, Quit Like a Woman about sobriety, much like Ruby, who has Sober Curious. So um, there's this idea in Holly's book, which is that AA for her didn't make sense. And she talked about all these principles of AA. And I, uh, Holly, if I'm butchering this idea, I apologize. <laughs> and I, it, the idea was um, to say, I hand over my power to a higher power. I admit that I made mistakes. I admit that I'm wrong. I right-size myself. She's like, all of these things are, are medicine for men to basically like be accountable and take on humility and realize that they're not God. And she's like, it's a different thing that women need. And she's like, in many ways, this is what the society has told me my whole life. And, and she's like, that's actually what made me sick. And so for her, AA was sort of like the wrong spirit. And for me, CBT was the wrong spirit. And I'll say, very important caveat, this is such important work that happens out in the world. CBT helps so many people. It's helped so many of my patients. And so if it's helpful for anybody out here, or if you're considering it, do consider it. This is very good work. Um, and yet, to me, the spirit of it is basically saying, don't believe your thoughts. They're irrational. You have cognitive distortions. And let's uh, kind of address them. <laughs> Let's remove these cognitive distortions and change your behavior. And as a woman, I didn't really need that messaging. I actually, I needed a process that helped me strengthen my connection to my intuition and honor what I was hearing from it. And I think that I was already, I already perceived that I lived in this patriarchy that um, for me to be successful and be accepted in the boys club, I was supposed to come across as rational and not sensitive and not 
convinced to do something based on intuition or my feelings. Like I already perceived that. I was like, yeah, okay, I'm rational and I'm good at math. Accept me. But it was such a disavowal of my truth. <laughs> and I could perform that all I wanted. Um, but it was me even telling myself that I didn't honor my more feminine traits. And it reminds me of this moment we're in right now with, I have a young daughter, she's seven years old, and the world tells me um, girls can be just as good at bo as boys. So enroll her in STEM activities, have her be interested in, in science and engineering and math and all of this. And that's fine. And that can be great. But I've noticed, I've observed, not in a way that I think I've culturally influenced her on, she's into dolls. And it almost implies that that's somehow less than, because nobody's saying, hey, boys can be just as good as girls. Let them play with dolls if they want. We're saying the things that boys might, on the margin, phenotypically be a little bit more interested in is better. And that the things that girls might phenotypically, on the margin, be generally more inclined to do, perhaps a priori of social conditioning, is worse. And so we say, you can be just as good as the boys. Go do their activities. But I think that it ends up con conveying this message of don't trust your own instincts. What you're into is somehow less than. And so I really needed a different approach. And CBT was basically telling me, like, your feelings are irrational. They're influencing your thoughts and your behaviors. And we need to put that to a stop. And I actually needed to really feel my feelings and learn to trust my intuition and let that guide me. Of course, always in balance with the objective facts, but to not disavow it. So I hope I conveyed that. I think I said it better in the book. <laughs> yeah, this was perfect because I, I, it is a, a deep um, thing that we can talk about at length. And so I was a little nervous to ask the question at the end here, but um, I think you you got the point across so beautifully. Um, and I, I truly want people to kind of walk away with this and say, huh, and just really think about this. I think it's an important thing to just consider and I truly appreciate the journey that you've been through to come to where you are today is like something wasn't working for you and you did more research to start to put the pieces together and, you know, bring a different way of thinking that I think is important. Um, but I also love that you respect the way things are and that everything has a place. Medication has a place. Getting proper sleep has a place. Okay, you don't have to never use your phone. Maybe don't use it after a certain time of day. So it's not, it's just like, okay, guys, and, and like the hormones, okay, don't never go to work or don't take this medication so you never feel your hormones. They change. Here's how you deal with it. So what would you want the one takeaway to be for people who are listening? I think that I tend to take a very actionable approach to mental health. And I say, you know, you can give your body better nourishment. You can be less inflamed. You can protect your sleep in these ways. You can do all of this. And I think that there's actually one thing that's worth squandering everything else for, and it's community. It's just to feel held and connected to the people that we love and the people that elevate us. And it's not as easy to prescribe that. You know, I can say, keep your bedroom at 68 degrees Fahrenheit and wear blue blockers after sunset and it will help your sleep. But, but how do we take the steps to ensure that we have community in our lives? It's tough. Um, but I think at the very least, we need to name that as the number one priority. And we need to realize there are certain ways to build that into our lives. I think about it as if you build it, they will come and be really true to yourself and how you build it. 
for me, like I don't want to be somewhere loud and overstimulating. So I just don't engage with socialization in that way. I carve out and create the social situations that feel good to me. And I make it realistic by lowering my standards. I'm not cooking a three-course meal. I'm not tidying up my home. I'm not putting on makeup. I'm saying, come over. Let's order takeout. I'll be wearing pajamas. You will sit on a pile of Legos. And that's what makes it realistic to connect because we're all busy and we're overwhelmed. But when we block ourselves from social connection, we had to ask ourselves, like, what is the real barrier there? Is that some kind of social story that was told to me that's actually no longer true or never really had to be my truth? And so prioritizing community above everything else, um, if we can do nothing else, start there. Oh, beautifully said. And I love the Lego example. But truly, thank you so much. I think um, everyone needs to check out the book, The Anatomy of Anxiety. Anything else you want people to know about you as far as getting into contact besides reading your book? Um, no, the book is the distillation of my life's work. I hope it's helpful. And I'm pretty active on Instagram. I'm at Ellen Vora MD. So you can find me there. Awesome. Thank you so much. Georgie, thank you so much. And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge, neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stages ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com, drop us a message on social media, or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations. And a quick note, the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider. It's not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor for health decisions. And remember, the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys, and it's not an endorsement by FemPower Health. Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time, and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.